today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Gerald Butts, one of Trudeau's closest advisors, has resigned from his position. Opposition parties are saying that his resignation is a sign there is a lot more to this scandal than uh, what we're certainly hearing about. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman. Summa Strategies has served as an advisor for national party leaders and cabinet ministers. And with us now, Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. And currently deafened by the convoy. You're right, Scott. Our office on is in Ottawa is on Spark Street, so most people know where that is. The pedestrian mall, which is a, a street away from Wellington, where all the trucks are now. I think they've moved in at about 9.30. I don't know if you can quite hear it, but I can. Lots of horns and whistles blowing now. They've been going hard for two and a half hours. They take a little break. Uh, I don't know. You know, I support what they're doing, but they may have me driven stark raving mad if this is going to go on for two days. Why aren't they up there uh, closer to the hill? Why aren't they rolling around where everybody up there is going to hear them more? Security, well, they are right on the hill. There's a bunch yeah. of them that are actually out of their trucks right now uh, who've traveled with them who are in a cordoned-off area looking at the empty center block because, as you know, center block is yeah. uh, is uh, currently being refurbished, but they're not too far from West Block where Parliament will uh, reopen this afternoon. But I guarantee you, if you're in downtown Ottawa, you'll either hear them or you'll be cursing at them because of the traffic. But that's the point they want to make because they're frustrated. Boy, there's lots on the Prime Minister's plate today. (laughs) Yeah, if he thought he was going to have a quiet family day weekend and come into a peaceful house, he got that wrong, as you said in your introduction uh, he's lost uh, his arguably his his top aide, um, Gerald Butt. So talk a little bit about Gerald. To those that may not know anything about this or this deep into Canadian politics, sure. what's his role? How important was this figure? Well, understand the friendship first. It goes back about 30 years when they were first undergraduate students at McGill University. So in their late teens, that's where they met. Uh, They've been integral parts of each other's lives. So this is not just simply a paid advisor who had a lot of influence. This is somebody who has been a longtime friend. Uh, Gerald apparently helped uh, the prime minister uh, write the, the, the famous eulogy he did for his father, uh, it was Gerald, along with other people like Katie Telford and the chief of staff, who've helped plot the prime minister's career. That's not to take away, obviously, from what the prime minister has done himself. Uh, but they were, uh, if if Justin Trudeau had a third arm and, a, and a, another part of his brain, it would be Gerald Butts. Uh, he certainly viewed that way around here in Ottawa. He was both protector, enforcer of the prime minister, and, and uh, whisperer and muse as well. So uh, a real tight... And tight would, some say, would some say responsible for some of his slip-ups? Eh, well, people are saying that, whether that's true or not. I mean, ultimately, the prime minister decides. But but but, but central figure in the government, also unusually... Uh, at least in certain circles, a high-profile political uh, person. He was on Twitter constantly uh, putting out the government's positions, defending the prime minister. He would be, this name will be familiar to you and some listeners, he's probably the Karl Rove to, uh, as Karl Rove was to George Bush, George W. Bush, Gerald Butts was, and more to Justin Trudeau. So a key figure. Also a figure... Uh, who was um, becoming a bit of a lightning rod for members of the caucus, particularly backbench MPs who felt butts as an unelected official 
had way too much sway over the government and was irritated. So if there's a positive the government may try to seize on with Gerald Butt's resignation, it's they can say, look, caucus, we're listening to you. But but this is a big blow to the prime minister. It's a big blow to the government because in the span of 12 days, they've lost a senior minister, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and they've lost a senior aide, and we're no closer really to knowing the truth around what happened or didn't happen, whether Jody Wilson-Raybould was pressured or not pressured. And every move the government has made thus far has been clumsy, in my view, and made them look more guilty. And they may not be guilty, but they're certainly doing a good job of looking like they are. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, if they don't, they, yeah, exactly. So are you surprised? How, how surprised are people in Ottawa at this resignation at this time? Pretty surprised just because of the tight bonds between the two of them. Uh, now, Butts in his statement said, and, and, and I know Jerry Butts, uh, he's, he, uh, we have a pretty respectful relationship in his statement. I'll take him at his word. In his statement, he says uh, that uh, he believes he's become a bit of a distraction, uh, but he also says he believes he's, uh, he's done nothing wrong and wants to have the ability to fight back and feels he can do that outside of the shackles of PMO, not that he was shackled in there. But, um, you know, whether that this is going to help the government change the channel on this story, I don't know. I think as long as Judy Wilson-Rabel is not speaking, uh, more questions will continue to flow. And even when she does speak, if she does speak, the story is not going away quickly. How do, how was he a distraction? No one's talking. No one was mentioning his name at this point. It was all her. So, uh, again, why do this? Well, he well, there were some news stories that had come out, and, and Butts, through the PMO, had said, look, he had, in fact, met with Jody Wilson-Rabel. He'd met her at the infamous Shadow Laurier in December, I believe it was, of last year, or October. It was one of those months, uh, and uh, they had indeed talked about this. So he was, com- it was coming forward through different sources that he was the point person, and I think he said that in his statement with Jody Wilson-Rabel. So government is hoping that now that Butts has stepped down, maybe the pressure will subside. But uh, I think that's a bit naive uh, on their part to believe all of that. But it's a, it's a, it's certainly a, a big day and a big moment in Ottawa when any principal secretary steps aside and the story doesn't dissipate when that happens. People don't say, oh, that's enough. We believe it's true. Uh, we move on from here. Well, are people as stunned uh, at, at this resignation as they were at uh, Wilson-Raybould's resignation? I mean, again, uh, does this not only draw more attention to oneself? It does indeed. And some of the speculation, the less kind speculation, and you'll know, Scott, there's always some of that here, mm. uh, is that Butts has stepped out because, she, uh, Jody Wilson-Rabel, when she does speak, is going to figure him, and this is a uh, finger him as the culprit, uh, and uh, and and this is a preemptive move to to deal with all of that. But again, it, it I, I don't think it's going to lessen the opposition's vigor to stop there. They want to continue going hard on this because it appears to be damaging the brand of the government, and you have to believe. Uh, that Justin Trudeau wouldn't be accepting his one of his best friend's uh, resignations if there wasn't a worry in the prime minister's office and with the prime minister that this story has the potential to uh, interrupt their re-election chances.
It also seemed that the prime minister was a little bit more complimentary in in his speak of of uh, butts than he was of Raybould Wilson or Wilson Raybould. Sorry. Yeah, he was all over the place in Wilson Rabel. Um, uh, at first, uh, sort of timid and acknowledging that uh, she, of course, if she was disgruntled, she would have stepped down. And then she stepped down, and then he seemed to attack her a little bit, and the unnamed sources attacked her. Then he said, no, no, people shouldn't speak that way. But with uh, with Jerry Butts, uh, it was certainly a glowing praise uh, that he gave when he tweeted out about uh, Jerry Butts yesterday. Um so, yeah, certainly differences to be pronounced there. I, I mean, I think the government has so, or the prime minister's office has so miscalculated this from the beginning uh, that they really don't know what to do. They do seem just utterly shell-shocked. I mean, I found it comical at one point last week in the last press availability of the prime minister before Mr. Butts resigned. He said, oh, this is all Scott Bryson's fault. Uh, yeah, yeah. Scott Bryson left Treasury Board. Okay, well, that makes no sense because that didn't necessarily necessitate a move of Wilson-Rabel. Today, of course, uh, with the truckers' horns a-blaring, question period comes back, (laughs) and uh, it's going to be an entertaining one. As far as I know, most of the national television networks are all taking it live. They're eager to see how this plays out. So how is the Prime Minister going to sell this, considering he's been changing his tune several times over the last week or so? I mean, are they going to try to play less is more here? I, I don't know because again, without but saying with, with Jerry Butt saying he didn't do anything wrong, um, how do you say all right this issue's been resolved? Because if Jerry Butts didn't do anything wrong, then did somebody else in the prime minister's office do something wrong? Did uh, or is Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, exacting some sort of revenge? Do you really want to attack her? She's become an iconic figure uh, for whether this she actually did or not, but she's been cast as somebody who stood up against coercive powers. Uh, It's a tough one. I think Trudeau just has to be consistent in whatever answer he decides to give because he's been so inconsistent. To be fair, he's been consistent in the fact in saying that the PMO didn't meddle, but uh, it didn't direct anybody. But it's hard to believe that answer, giving all the other moving parts. I think he could make an argument that may help him in Quebec and elsewhere to say, look, you know what, upon reflection, perhaps we did, uh, we're a bit more overzealous than we should have been here. The reason we were is we believe in this big multinational Canadian company that employs so many people that has risks in other parts of the country. But he needs a better story, at least the one that makes logical sense. Uh, better for uh, Butts, I guess, to have resigned before all of a sudden people start crying for him to resign. Uh, is that the strategy here, trying to stay one step ahead of it? I'm not sure how this fixes the mess. Well, other than, I, I, shouldn't he? Yeah. Shouldn't he just sort of, like you said, come up with a strategy that that takes the blame and 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 moves on, as opposed to changing a story every couple of days? Well, there's another dynamic here, too, right? Uh, there's restlessness in the Liberal caucus, and you started to see that last week. You had, uh, when when Miss Wilson-Rabel resigned, you had a, a chorus of, of different MPs say, hey, uh, we support her, PMO's got to do more uh, to, to answer this, Prime Minister's got to let her speak. Uh, I think the government hopes with butts going, they're sending a message internally to their own uh, uh, members that they're hearing them about, you know, the discord that Jerry was sowing in their minds elsewhere. So we'll see if that actually works. 
I think if the Prime Minister really believes that nothing uh, untoward happened, and he really believes that that story should be told, then he needs to find a way to lift solicitor-client privilege around Jody Wilson-Rabel and then have, have her perspective out on the table as opposed to it being interpreted because the symbolism, again, is killing him, right? Here is the prime minister who was an avowed feminist who cares mm. deeply about indigenous rights, uh, has duct-taped the mouth of the former indigenous, uh, first indigenous Attorney General of Canada. That just doesn't look good. Wouldn't it be better to almost let her have her say and then plan your strategy around that as opposed to trying to figure it all out and stay a step ahead of it? Absolutely. And and, and again, I think, you know, the, the government is arguing, and maybe there's a little bit to this, but I, there's always ways, as you know, to drive information. Uh, but the government is arguing, oh, this would be we, we would set some dangerous precedents. There's a couple of court cases. I think there's more on the line if they want to continue to be government uh, that the, than, uh, than, than saying we need to hold the line on solicitor-client privilege. Uh, I, I think they have to find a way to let Jody Wilson-Rabel speak, to let the, you know, to let that element come out. Because right now, they're, you know, the prime minister, who is a boxer, is doing a lot of shadow boxing. He's trying to land hits, but uh, he's missing. And if he's going to land a hit with a compelling story that Canadians are going to believe, then uh, then he perhaps needs a target, and that might be what comes out of Mrs. Uh, Miss Wilson Rabel's mouth in terms of the facts as she believes them to be. This is still all politics at this point. Over and above all of that, what about the SNC Lavalin case? And uh, you know, if any crimes were committed, how how does that all? How does that well, all, uh, I mean, uh, the government's probably going to have to run, you know, ten, five, ten miles away from all of that. Now, before Miss Wilson-Rabel resigned, I believe I have that chronologically correct, the now Attorney General David Lametti, um, I, I believe, yes, he did, had said that, uh, you know, he was still prepared to look at that case. I, boy, it will be seem politically foolhardy to run back in and say, yes, SNC-Lavalin, you can have this deferred uh, prosecution agreement, this form of remediation that would allow you then to pay fines and move forward and still be able to do Canadian contract work, unless they're prepared to go to the wall and say, hey, this is why we're doing it. But they just seem back to the boxing analogy like they're punch drunk. The whole government has just kind of been hit so many times in the head by themselves they're wavering and they don't know where to go. How does this compare to other missteps, uh, especially with an election on the horizon? Does this resonate with Canadians? Yeah, that's the best question. I'm not, not that all your questions weren't good, Scott, but <laughs> is this resonating with Canadians? There's one poll out there that suggests it is. I mean, it's going to take time in a series of polls to see if it's resonating. Um, usually it's not one story, but a series of things wrapped together and the opposition and other critics um, going hard after the government. Certainly there's lots of attention. Butts wouldn't be gone if the government didn't think it was going to resonate. Far too early, though, to say if this is the undoing of the Trudeau government. I would still say to you today uh, that they would be favored for re-election. The prime minister's personal numbers are still good. A different poll has them at 38 percent. But it, 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 it is indeed the biggest threat they have uh, faced, and it's certainly not the path they want going into re-election, having to talk about this for the next eight months. 
Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott, and I'm sending the truckers your way. All right. To the air Circle horns, them okay? back around. Thank Bye. you, Tim. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Are Canadians getting screwed when it comes to buying new cars? According to the Canadian Black Books annual roster that reveals vehicles sporting the best retained value, people are more willing than ever to take on too much debt for their rides. What does all this mean? Let's bring in Lorraine Sommerfeld, auto writer with Post Media Motherload column in the spec and host of the Lemonade Car Show. And the latest column is uh, out of uh, driving.ca. Uh, Lorraine explains Canadian needs to smarten up when Canadians need to smarten up when buying new cars. She is with us now. Lorraine, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always. How are you? I'm doing well. How's your son? He's good. He's really good. All right. We'll leave it at that. Oh. <laughs> He's doing well. It's an ongoing process. I know. He's okay. doing very well. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear <laughs> that. Uh, so you, you, an interesting headline here underneath uh, the subheadline underneath yours, uh, 30% of trade-ins are over $7,000 in the hole. Uh, it should be yeah. a wake-up call uh, and not be ignored. What do you mean by that? 30% of the trade-ins are over $7,000 in the hole. It's negative equity, and we all know when you drive a car off the lot, you have a loan for, let's say the car costs $10,000, and you finance it, okay, which a lot of people do, they'll finance the whole thing. The second you drive it off the lot, it's not worth $10,000 anymore, and most of us know we're going to have to pay for a few years to even find that, to get above water, to have level ground, which means the car is finally not worth less than what you owe. Right. That's the simplest way. And what's happening is people are going back in and buying a car. They've still got a loan outstanding on it, and they're just pushing it into another loan. So picture a snowball going down a hill, and it's getting bigger and bigger. And what we're doing, you said at the top, um, are, are we getting screwed? Well, we're screwing ourselves. Like yeah. People are knowingly doing this. And when I saw that 30% of new car sales are under seven, like $7,000 in the hole when they go in, if you buy a car for 20000 add another seven on top of that, and you know it's going to be worth less, you're going to have yourself in a trap for years. So are that many people buying new cars still haven't, having not paid off the one they're selling? Well, 30% are underwater, wow. and that's, that's 7000 Other people are underwater. Like, it's just such a common, acceptable thing. And as soon as you normalize it and, you know, you're hearing words like, everyone does it, it's okay. And, you know, they're doing it. People are buying a car by the month, and they're just, if you want a car payment for the rest of your life, okay. Why not lease? If you're going to do that, why not lease then? That's the thing. And you should have a reason to lease. Like, if you can write it off or something. Leasing became, it's for everybody, you know, back in, just before the big crash in 2008. And it's not. It's not the best thing for it for everyone you don't want that line item in your budget every month you know five or six hundred dollars that's you know that's a lot of money to have in there and cars are built so well they last a long time now is that the problem here is that is that the problem here lorraine is that uh because of that we are financing them longer but however we don't feel happy to keep them that long well i mean 88 percent of people that are driving age own a car yeah. which is the highest it's ever been. And sales are, you know, leveling off this year, the end of last year and now this year. Um, it, it's just everyone wants the shiny stuff. I don't know. My dad, we would buy a car. He would save up. We would buy a car. AMC man had to last 10 years. So we mm. drove it around full of holes. It's like yeah. it had to last. And so I think the mindset's changed. Well, yeah, you certainly, you certainly didn't go buying a new one until the other one was paid off. 
Absolutely. And you usually didn't buy another one until it, you know, was done. Yeah. <laughs> so you yeah. couldn't get anything else out of it. But, you know, it's acceptable and it's okay. The same way we go through phones, we're going through cars. And if you want to do it and you can afford it, great. That's a lot of jobs you're creating by buying cars all the time. But household budgets are getting decimated. So um, if you're doing this, if you're the type of person that, uh, you know, obviously finances these through a long period of time, but likes the car uh, newer than that, um, rather than flipping over and, and buying, getting into a new loan when you haven't paid over, paid off your last one, is it better for those types of people to actually be in a lease? Um, it depends on the discipline of the person. I don't want to take a, a brush. I mean, there's some people that it makes, yeah. if they can get 0% financing, they go, I'll take the eight years. It's free. It's like, that's great. Yeah. Like, if they're disciplined enough to put the money aside. Just the release of this uh, Canadian Black Book thing is interesting because it tells you what your car will retain at about the three, the three or four year point. I'm sorry, right. I think it's four. It's good to go online and read that. And there's a lot of Toyotas in there. There's a lot of cars. Just we can predict them always. The ones will have better you know, retained value. You might want to check that because if you're taking an eight-year loan on a car that doesn't, you know, that it's going to fall off the radar within three years, right. that's a lot of negative equity you're holding. And, you know, if you roll it into something else because you want to get rid of it, you're taking on a lot of debt and that shows up on your credit rating, and it can tank you in other areas. It's the same way the housing market fell apart in the U.S. This is a version of the big short, only it's on wheels, and people Hmm. have to stop doing it. Uh, That being said, um, because cars are lasting so long, is it worth buying a new one because you you, you are keeping it for that period of time? I mean, you know, we all know, as you mentioned, as soon as you drive it off the lot, it depreciates thousands of dollars. Is it worth even buying a new one? I I mean, if you, uh, the used market's really, really strong. The sales yeah. have never been higher in the used market. I buy cars. Yeah. Like I buy them. I don't lease them. Yeah. Cars are good. Buy the car, but anticipate um, keeping it, which means right. do the maintenance, keep it clean, decide you're going to love this car, and keep it in great shape. If you treat it like a, it's been through the drive through every 10 minutes and dump all the crap everywhere, no one's going to want it. Yeah. But I think we just have to stop chasing shiny things and just be more disciplined when it comes to these huge purchases. You wouldn't walk into a house and go, I'll take it, you know, to a realtor. Well, at least I wouldn't. What is this, uh, you know, I remember when I first heard, oh, you can finance this over seven years. <laughs> it's like, wow, I never knew that. I mean, I thought five was the most you could ever finance a car. Uh, is it, is this just the result of, I guess, uh, dealers, banks, whatever, financing us for such a long period of time? Is that where well, the fault is? In other words, if you can't afford it in five years, then you can't afford it. Well, that's what I say. And everyone says I'm an old grump, but when the, market fell apart in 2008 leasing disappeared and this is the answer when it came back leasing was still it was weak the numbers were not there anymore this was their answer to before they would say oh you can't afford it we'll put you in a lease now that's not an option they go we'll extend the time and i've made the point 96 months that is an eight-year-old, folks. Yeah. If I told you my kid was 96 months old, you'd think I was crazy. <laughs> so that a 96-month-old is in grade three. So look at that car and stop the weasel speak of yeah. 84 months and 96 months. You're just being, you know, you're taking down the lane. Is this the answer? You know, you were talking about the recession and how that kind of dried up the leasing market. Is this sort of the industry's answer to that dried-up leasing market? Oh, heck yeah. Any way they can get you in that car, they're going to do it. And they know they can break you down 
and find out how much a month you have to spend. People yeah. just stopped adding up how many months they're actually going to spend for that. I won't take a car loan over five years. There is no way. Yeah. If I have to, it means I can't afford it. Yeah, yeah. And sorry, it's a hard fact. And there's lots and lots and lots of, of options for people, so many options that you don't have to spend $40,000 on a car if you don't have it. So don't. So um, what about leasing? Is it worth it? Who is, who is it for? This is probably a better question for an accountant. Um, than it is for yeah, me right. because when I owned a business, if you you know, yeah, you can write, write it off. off. Yeah, I could write it off. It mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, some older people like it because they always want a car that's under warranty, so salespeople can lean on them a little and say, "You yeah. don't want to drive an old car," mm-hmm. you know. So for a lot of people, it's about always being under warranty. Right. And you know what? If that if that's safer, I drove cars and I was out at Mac on the far shuttle parking lot late at night in the dark with a dead car. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't want that happening to my kids. So mm-hmm. a lot of people want warranty. But again, the cars are made really, really well and warranties yeah. are longer. Buy a Mitsu, it's got a ten year warranty if it'll make you happy. But is yeah, is leasing as strong as it it was prior to the recession? Has it? Come, I know that it is has come back and been offered, but is is it as is is attractive to people as it once was? I don't know that figure. I'm mm-hmm. going to guess um, it peaked right before it crashed because yeah. everybody was leasing everything, and then they found out it bites them in the butt when you go to turn your lease. People who had never historically leased before started doing it, and they turn a car in, and then they'd get a bill from the leasing company for like $2,400 or something. They're like, what is this? It's like, you can't have little marks on it. You can't have yeah. tire wear. Like, you've got to, you know, have that car back to the cost that you signed like the right. value of that car you signed a contract what it would be worth so and it, because you don't lease it from the car dealership you lease it from a leasing company and that's why it's a delay and you get a bill for what they decided was wrong with it and you don't have it in your possession anymore it's already been to auction you don't have much to prove so take lots of photos but also take it in a month in advance before your lease is up right. go over it with your dealer with the service manager and say, what are we going to be looking at? And take, you know. Wow, and even then, wow, (laughs) good luck. (laughs) It's not fun, especially people, if you don't lease, then you don't know this until you find out the hard way. Yeah. Um, So obviously the good rule of thumb here is don't be buying another car until you paid for the one you've got. Just no. I mean, would that not keep you out of this? Well, I I think people have to look at the price of the whole car, you know? Yeah, once you pay for it. And add in the financing costs and everything else. And all of a sudden, if you're spending thirty-two thousand dollars, keep that number in your head—not yeah. the you know three eighty-two a month they told you they can get it down to or whatever. And I mean, they'll lob on stuff. They used to put you know TVs and stuff to an extra two bucks a month. You can have this two months over six years. Yeah, <laughs> a, you know it's a lot of money. So just please keep the emotion out of it and stick. How do you keep the emotion out of buying a car? That's what it all is, man. As soon as you get behind the wheel, it's the big, you know, poo-eating smile and it's emotion. Yeah, until you figure out you can't work half the stuff. It's it's called the test drive. Yeah, yeah. and people are doing fewer of those too, which I'll never understand, but yeah. So um, at the end of the day, is it, you know, I guess uh, if you were buying, because a car is a large amount of money. It's a huge expenditure, and it's Mm -hmm. unlike your house. It doesn't go up in value. It goes down the second you drive it off the lot. Are you better to buy brand new, or are you better to buy a year or two old? If you can get a car that's two or three years old from a trusted source, 
Absolutely, it's a great deal. Someone's taking the hit for you on the depreciation. All I'm going to say is don't be suckered into buying high-end badges that are three years old because you go, oh, for that much money, I can get into a Mercedes or something. Right. When, when the repairs hit on those German yeah. ones, it's going to bite you so hard in the butt, you're not going to be able to sit down. So be really careful about going chasing status and keep to buying something that's, you know, a good read, read the Canadian Black Book stuff, read the reports and consumer reports and stick to bulletproof good vehicles. You, you hear last and last. You know, you hear all these anecdotal stories about, you know, buying a good used car and, and use the term trusted source and such. How do you how do you if you're going in looking for something that was, you know, I remember somebody saying you're just buying someone else's mistake. Uh, uh, how, how do no, you make how do you make sure that you got something you want? You got something would, that's going to last. certified used cars, and that's like an actual sticker at dealerships. So they're certified, Which because usually if you buy a used car, you drive it off, you have zero warranty. There's nothing. If that thing falls apart a yeah. block from your house, you can't come back with it. So certified gives you at least some safety in there. But check with, the, check with OMVIC, check with the APA, see who good dealers are to work with. Watch out for curbsiders. Everybody knows all this stuff. What's a curbsider? Oh, people that pose as I'm selling my car, but they're actually dealers. They're shady, and they're just pushing cars through, and they're frequently not certified. Sometimes they're welded together from two other cars that have been written off. You don't know. So trusted source. And no matter any used car you go to buy, your mechanic puts it up on the hoist and gives you a report. Do not move away from that. If they won't let you do that, walk away. So curbsiders are people that are uh, actually dealers or, or wholesalers, but they're trying to yeah. make it look as if you're just buying a private sale off someone. Yeah, you'll be in front of a house, not their house. Look yeah. at their look at the registration and their license. You want ID, so look at their license and look at the green slip and see. If it doesn't match where you are yeah. and the names don't match, you've got mm. a problem right there. And again, keep the emotion out of it. No matter how much you want this car, if it's too good to be true, it's too good. Forget it. Walk away from it. But... I mean, that doesn't mean you can't buy off friends who are turning leases in. By law, they have to tell you if it was a rental car or right. if it's been in a crash. You can get car proof, which will reveal all that. And again, a few thousand dollars damage in a crash is nothing anymore, so don't don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, how do you know if the regular maintenance has been done or not? Well, it's nice. And, and how done. crucial is that to the early it's, stages of a car? It's incredibly crucial. If, if the car is only two or three years old, there's still warranty on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you go go to the dealer. The dealer, thank you for computers now. The dealer has a record of the history right. of that car. If the, I hand people a file folder, like I'm just like that. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, for warranty, that stuff has to have been done yeah. at the proper intervals. So you want someone, and ask those questions, definitely. But again, certified used cars, you're dealing with known quantities, which helps. But go on OMVIC's site and play. They'll, they'll, they put people in jail. It's hilarious. It's great. Um, just go on their site, and you can see people who have been pushed out and fined, and they name them. And I guess like any major purchase, you should visit your financial institution and know how much money you got to play with before you go out. I think so. A lot of people don't want to do that. It's like the bank won't find out if I'm spending this money. It's like a mom and dad thing. But <laughs> um, <laughs> don't tell. But no, you, you should go because your bank person's going to be really realistic with you. Yeah. And that's a good thing. And you don't want to put a car against your line of credit on your house. Like you don't want to do that. Mm. You don't want to. And people do. We've been using the houses like ATM. Yeah. You don't want to do it. You want to keep everything safe. And if it means that you don't get the bling, bling, bling car, Trust me, even entry-level stuff, heated seats, they've got everything. It's great. Yeah. Great car. It's yeah, amazing how, how much they've progressed over time. All right, sure. what are you driving? 
Oh, I've got a Jaguar <laughs> F page. <laughs> Their SUV, it's beautiful. <laughs> a Jaguar SUV. Yeah, the F page. Yeah. And what does that go for? Um, this is, you know what? This one I would have to look up because I just picked it up. And it's the howdy doody one. So it's Because it's so many zeros? <laughs> yeah. It's going so, to be quite high end. <laughs> so, what are uh, you talked about, you know, people buying uh, for the badge and buying mm-hmm. an old Mercedes or an older mm-hmm. BMW. But, but are they, especially with something like that, they are, the maintenance fees are a little higher, aren't they? They're a lot higher. And in some cases, you need specialists. You can't just take your car to your trusted neighborhood mechanic. So be careful, especially if you get older in the German stuff. It gets pickier as you go along. But an oil change, if we figure an oil change is 45 bucks, 50 bucks, yeah. on some of these it's 140 Like even just the little stuff is a lot higher. So go in knowing that. Know the fuel type it takes if it's high octane. Factor yeah, that's in. another thing too, isn't it? Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah, check. Yeah. All this stuff will add up over time. And if you're, if you're aware of this and you know it, excellent. You can get a really good deal on some of these cars. Don't go or just ask them. for the one that Lorraine has been test driving all week. You know, she's already <laughs> drove it off the lot, so you've lost. You know, there you go. Someone has to do the job. That's now. right. Uh, <laughs> Lorraine Semerveld has been with us, auto writer uh, with Post Media, Motherload column in the spec, and host of the Lemonade Car Show, the latest in driving.ca. Lorraine explains Canadians need to smarten up when buying new cars. Lorraine, as always, thanks so much for the time and enjoy the Jag. I think I might. All right, Talk take care. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Two interesting stories, uh, one from CTV, one from Global, in regard to uh, uh, citizens from those countries that go over to fight in other parts of the world, um, particularly in this case for ISIS, and then want to come back. Uh, story in uh, global about on the global news site about a family from a, a British teenager who ran away to join the Islamic State now wants to return to the UK uh, and has given birth to a baby boy. Uh, the family's lawyer said the 19-year-old and the baby are in good health. Uh, and uh, has, I guess, previously lost two babies to illness due to malnutrition. Uh, News of this and her desire to go back to Britain have ignited a debate in the UK about how to deal with citizens who join uh, ISIS and want to leave Syria now that the extremist group is on the verge of collapse and then come back. Uh, Same story in uh, a CTV report about an Alberta woman who moved to Syria with her ISIS-supporting husband two years ago. Uh, sorry, and their two year, uh, two boys now wants to return to Canada. Uh, the woman is one of four Canadian ISIS brides uh, that was in this interview and basically uh, said how they ended up in, in this dangerous uh, situation, which all started when uh, this particular woman married a Muslim man, converted to Islam, started learning about the religion more and more and just felt that it was suitable for us to uh, not to stay in Canada anymore. Uh, at first, she said it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying when you're walking along the street and a plane is coming. Uh, they were constantly in on the run inside Syria as the terrorist group attempted to establish the caliphate. After her husband was killed, she married a Bosnian man. He was killed about three months later. She is now pregnant with his child. She says, I don't regret this. I want to be able to raise him or her in a safe environment before... Um, 
she said she thinks she should be allowed to go home. I don't believe I did anything wrong. I didn't kill nobody. I didn't do any harm to anybody. I want to be here with my family. I want my kids to go to school and get a proper education. Uh, the nonprofit group Families Against Violence is lobbying for uh, this person's return to Canada uh, after traveling uh, to Syria. There are at least 27 people currently detained, more than half are children, uh, in situations like this. Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale told uh, press that this month, uh, earlier this month, that repatriating foreign fighters and their families is not a priority, which is odd considering it wasn't that long ago that uh, uh, the Prime Minister was meeting with Joshua Boyle. Uh, he and his family in Afghan- uh, came from Afghanistan. Uh, he took his bride there uh, backpacking and then somehow uh, ended up involved with terrorist organizations and, and producing a family there. Uh, and then returned back to Canada and, of course, was part of a big photo op for uh, Justin Trudeau and so on. And then the whole story went off the rails when uh, he allegedly abused his wife and so on and so forth. She went back to the United States and the whole story just became uh, a nightmare for the for the prime minister's office. So where do we stand internationally or just even as a country when it comes to taking these people back? Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk uh, Risk Con- uh, Consulting and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. I'm sure this is a sensitive topic, but it seems that uh, the safety minister Ralph Goodell has been pretty clear on this. It's not a priority anymore. Well, he has been clear, and I think that there are a number of reasons for this. So if we look at what our, some of our partners are doing, you may be aware that uh, President Trump just issued an infamous tweet in which he said that Western European nations should take their citizens back. Uh, they pushed back pretty quickly and said, uh, excuse me, uh, you don't tell us what to do with our foreign policy. And as recently as this morning, I was reading some articles in European newspapers. The Danes, the Swiss have said no. Uh, the Belgians have said no. The Germans have said, well, we'll think about it. The French have brought a few back. The Brits are somewhere betwixt and between. And as you said, Ralph Goodale has said categorically that it's not a priority. And, and the way that the Minister of Public Safety here in Canada expressed it was in terms of safety for consular officials, meaning we don't have uh, diplomatic re- representation in the area where they're being held, and we're not going to send our consular officials into an area where they might be killed. That's the excuse that they're using. But I don't think for one minute that any government, especially a liberal government, in light of, let's say, the SNC-Lavalin and the Gerald Butts affair, which we're hearing about daily or almost minutely right now, wants to go out on a limb and, and rescue people that most Canadians would probably say, hey, you know what? They've made their bed, let, let them lie in it. They, they, they went to join a terrorist group. Why should we move heaven and earth to get them back? Seems odd for, the, for Donald Trump to have taken that position that he did. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, you never know with the Donald, right? Yeah. From one minute to the next, you never know what's going to come out of his Twitter account. Uh, I, I do think what he's probably been told by his intelligence officials, not that he listens to them anytime, any more than anybody else, I suppose, is that, look it, if you move ahead with our plans to withdraw our forces from Syria, this is going to open up a vacuum. Uh, we don't know what the Syrians are going to do. We don't know what the Russians are going to do. These foreign terrorist fighters might end up leaving custody. He might end up being reabsorbed by Islamic State, which has not gone away, by the way, despite what the president says. They might end up traveling abroad to join other groups or carry out attacks. So 
it's better that we take care of them in, in, in their home countries rather than leaving the question mark as to where they go next. So I think that's what's driving his mentality. But, hey, if I could predict what's in Donald Trump's hmm. brain, I'd be a bazillionaire. He came out a while ago, a few weeks ago, and said ISIS was dead, it's over, and started pulling out troops. Uh, obviously, we're hearing confirmation of that in various forms. Is he right? Is it dead in that respect? And what happens to the leftovers? Not at all. In fact, I put out a podcast a few weeks ago that your listeners may be interested in subscribing to that Islamic State is not dead. It certainly isn't what it was three years ago at the height of its caliphate, but I've seen estimates as high as twenty to 30,000 fighters still, and they're in the area or somewhere in the region. And there's a lot of talk about Islamic State morphing into a guerrilla group as opposed to a terrorist group. They don't hold territory as much as they once did, but they haven't disappeared. And I think if the Americans... And look, at the Americans do whatever they want. I mean, you know, it, there's no question that having your forces in a foreign land actually breeds terrorism as much as it stops terrorism. So I understand the president wants to keep one of his campaign promises and bring bring the U.S. boys back from these foreign uh, these foreign wars. But it's a m- lot more complicated than just putting out in a tweet that Islamic State is dead. The bottom line is that if the, even if the group is not doing as well as it once did, the ideology is thriving. And it's thriving on a number of levels. And that's not going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. So what's next? How does that progress, considering what has happened territorial, territorially? Well, it depends on who you listen to. Uh, some people think the group itself might actually resurrect itself, like an Islamic State 2.0. Um, other groups might form. I just, in fact, just put the finish touches on another podcast on Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda never went away. In fact, there's an Al-Qaeda group in northern Syria called... Uh, um, it's, oh, sorry, it's used to call Jabal al-Nusra Front, um, Hayat al sham they're seen as, as a major group in northern Syria. So who knows what's going to happen? Uh, these groups will they'll morph into different things, they will combine, they'll split, they'll go off in different directions, and, you know, Syria is not going to become a, a beacon of democracy tomorrow. And the instability with millions of in, internally displaced people, millions of refugees, these are the conditions under which, you know, terrorist groups can recruit. Not to say that all refugees are terrorists. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But, you know, if you've lived in your three or four years in a refugee camp, no one gives a tinker's damn about you. And sometimes terrorist groups are looking at, well, we can, we, can, we can provide for you, we can provide for your family. You know, it's not a bad option for some people. Are there large, larger numbers looking to disperse because of what has happened with the slow dismantling or, or repositioning of ISIS? Are there many contemplating, I'm going home? There are, and we've seen it around the world, right? You mentioned a few cases. But what does that say about the success of ISIS and the caliphate if people are sort of disbanding and getting disillusioned with it? Or, or well, I think it, I think it says they realize it gigs up. I mean, they certainly don't control the territory they once did. They don't have a state. They don't have a caliphate. They don't have a functioning society. And I think people say, yeah, you know what, Binder done that, time to go home. The, the big question is, and I think this is what we're going to get to eventually, is, you know, do we welcome them home with open arms? Yeah, and what I do we do? That is no. Well, it's funny. So, you know, the, the minister has said this is not a priority. Others say we have a moral obligation to do that. I'm not real, I don't know what a moral obligation is. So we have a moral obligation to move heaven and earth to rescue people, who made a conscious decision, they weren't brainwashed, they weren't cajoled or coerced, they made a conscious, willing decision to join a terrorist group. And now that it's not going so well, we have to, you know, in, come in with the cavalry and rescue them? Look, the Charter says that, that, you know, every Canadian has a right to leave and a right to return. So if they, if they somehow make their way home, we have no choice. They are Canadians. 
Now, whether we can prosecute them is a whole other kettle of fish that, that's much more complicated than people say. My line, and it's going to sound cruel as well, you know what? They found their way to Iraq and Syria. They can find their way home. And mm. if, if they do that, we have to take them in. But I think we should try them, charge them right off the get-go with joining a terrorist group. And if we can charge them with other crimes against humanity, which Islamic State was famous for, we'll do that too. Although it's really hard to gather evidence in a, in a war zone, but at a minimum, there is a provision of the criminal code that you can charge them with leaving the country to join a terrorist group. How can groups like Families Against Violent Extremism be lobbying for their return when that's what they were doing there? I mean, my goodness, they were involved in violent with violent extremists. How can how can a family that's or sorry, an organization that's against this now say this is who they are? I I, I don't get it. I, I know the people behind this. Uh, I've met with them. I I don't agree with them. Look, we're talking about a terrorist group that raped little girls. We're talking about a terrorist group that threw people off buildings, drowned people alive. You know, and it's true that maybe not everybody who joined the group uh, took part in those activities. But the bottom line is that they were aware of them, probably. We've seen the, you know, you mentioned that the young woman from the United Kingdom who just gave birth to a baby in, in Syria. Mm-hmm. And she wants to come home, but she also says she, she regrets nothing. Yeah, She doesn't regret joining a terrorist group. I mean, what kind of mentality is that? So, I, I, I don't know. I feel for the kids, the young kids. There's no agency there. They didn't choose to go to Syria and Iraq. They didn't choose to join Islamic State. I think we probably should make more efforts to get them back. As for the wives and mothers, uh, let's not fool ourselves. These people aren't, aren't, aren't dupes. You know, they're seen as all their, they just followed their husbands. No, yeah. they didn't. They made a conscious decision to join a terrorist group. I've advocated putting the children in, in the care of the state. That's probably a very unpopular view, but hey, we do it in other cases, don't we? Where kids are in danger. And you don't think that a kid who's being raised by jihadi parents is in danger? You think that a mother who takes her child to Islamic State to eventually become a member of the terrorist group is a fit mother? Yeah. I don't think so. But that's probably an unpopular view. Uh, has this view, or has the government's view of this changed since the Joshua Boyle uh, situation and, and we all know what happened there and, and the photo op with the Prime Minister and then it all kind of blew up. Uh, due to that encounter, d- did that perhaps change the way they handle things? It's hard for me to say because I'm no longer in government, but I'd be very surprised if people within the Prime Minister's office who have other other fish to fry right now, by the way, uh, haven't thought about this. That was a, that was a PR disaster. Uh, not only did Joshua Boyle have a very, shall we say, interesting past. He was once married to one of the Cotter girls. Yeah. Uh, he took his wife backpacking to Afghanistan. Who the hell does that? Yeah. Now there's allegations of sexual abuse. There's, there's questions as to how do you actually have three kids when you're being held by the Taliban yeah. as hostages? How do, how do you figure that one out? So I, I think the PMO realized, my God, this was, this was a disaster. There's been a lot of pushback on the Omar Cotter payout. You're probably aware of it. I've done a lot of interviews on yeah. that. The 10.5 yeah. million Omar Cotter got. So Canadians aren't happy. And, and now looking for and now looking for uh, uh, conditions of his uh, of his release, his parole to be to be uh, exactly released. Like, exactly. Yeah. This is a story that's not going away. My, my advice to Omar Cotter is shut your pie hole. because yeah. people are really unpo- you're really unpopular as it is. But anyhow, I, I think the prime minister and his his aides have said. You know what? Uh, we might just uh, rag the puck on this one a little bit because there's no benefit for us. And especially given what's happening now with the government over the SNC Lavalin affair, I'd be very surprised if anyone thinks that the repatriation of, of female terrorists 
is a priority for the Canadian government. I what, think for the kids, I think for the kids, something has to be done. But for the women, uh, they made a bad choice. Sometimes bad choices lead to bad consequences. Uh, that reminds me of the situation in, in regard to the Saudi Arabian girl who started the the the, the Twitter campaign to. Uh, uh, to come here, well, not to come here. We ended up taking her in uh, by request of the United Nations, and then that turned into a sort of a PR fiasco uh, as well. Are, are they are they stepping down from that now? Do you think? Do you think one of those would have? Uh, do you think that case would have affected this in any way? Well, you know, I, I've seen a lot of analysis lately that the, the foreign policies of the Trudeau government have not been the greatest choices. We have the whole Huawei thing. We could talk a lot about. You talked about Saudi Arabia and the tweets that. Uh, Minister Friedland issued about Saudi Arabia human rights. So I, I think for a lot of people, this government is seen as being rather inept when it comes to foreign policy. I don't happen to share that view, but I understand that it has caused problems for them. And at one point, you start asking yourself, um, what if if we do if we do this, what are the possible consequences? What are the possible outcomes of this? And I think maybe you get a little bit gun shy. And, you know, let's face it, not making a decision is a decision, right? Yeah. If you decide to rag the puck a little bit and push it down the road, we're in an election year. And the election's not that far away. And a lot of things are sort of, you know, can we actually do this? What's it gonna, how's it going to affect the, the vote? How, how do Canadians view us right now? Do we need another potential disaster to blow up in our faces? And I think the answer is no. So I'd be very surprised if political calculations are not a big part of the decision-making. Hmm. I can't let you go, Phil, without asking you your thoughts on the resignation of Gerald Butts over the course of uh, the weekend in the whole SNC-Lavalin uh, case and, and, and where it goes from here. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a political analyst. Not, I'm not a political junkie, but boy, it sure stinks, doesn't it? <laughs> there, there's there's something going on here that uh, there's a lot more than, uh, the, than I think the the government is is letting on. I don't know what that is. I don't know what, what exactly happened with Minister uh, Wilson Raybould. I don't know what happened with FNC, but you got this slew of statements and resignations, and hmm, things don't smell good in Ottawa. And I live here. Uh, you, you were saying that you weren't uh, willing to say that you know the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. It would hard to be. It, w- it would hard to come to that conclusion today. Uh, th- th- are any of these things related? I, I think that when you're entering, uh, you're an election year. There, a lot of things have happened that do not paint the current government in the best light whether it's foreign policy decisions or domestic positions, you have the whole, I'm in Ottawa, we have the convoy now from Western Canada, apparently yeah. is right down on Ottawa today, I haven't seen any, any coverage of it, but apparently there's these big semi-trailers are yep. parked out in front of Parliament Hill, uh, that doesn't look good, that refers to you know domestic energy policy, and I think that, again, when you make the calculus, we're, we, you know, we want to be re-elected as a government, um, we've got to give Canadians a reason to vote for us, and we've got to not give them reasons not to vote for us, and I think every time that you make decisions that end up not turning out as you had planned, it kind of sticks in the craw of the voter, right? So when you go mark your X in the ballot box, you think, hmm, what has this government done for me lately? Or rather, what have they not done? Or what have they done rather inelegantly, can I use that term, uh, or not smartly, that would lead me to put my X somewhere else? So I think it's all part and parcel of the same calculation. Phil Gursky has been with us, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Take care. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.